afternoon and welcome to the Tortoise Shack Sunday special. Um, uh, my name is Tony Groves and today I'm on my own. Um, Vicky is taking a well-deserved break um, and Martin has gone to such degree that he wants just to believe that he's gone all the way to the trouble of going to Bowmount Hospital just to get out of going to this. So um, people, well, there's going to be people saying, get well soon, Martin. I just think it's terrible that you left me in the lurch like this on a, on a, on a Sunday on my own. Um, couple of things before we start. These podcasts, obviously, we do them with an audience of our patron supporters, which is fantastic. But if you aren't a patron supporter in the last few days, you've already missed out on Holly Cairns on anti-corruption, Mel Reynolds on fixing the housing system, Dan Nickstrom and on Finland via Irish Eyes, and Patrick Costello on his case, his unsuccessful case uh, for of CETA versus the Irish government. And that's just a few of them. I also want to mention before we go any further, because while people are listening, that uh, the 20th of September to the 2nd of October is Traveller Pride Week. So many events to see, so many events to check out. But do check out hashtag Traveller Pride Week on social media. You'll get a list of the things there. Well worth looking, well worth getting involved with. But I just think, you know, it's 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 not often that we see so, so much momentum, but I've seen a lot of buzz around it on social media. Anyway, that's enough plug-in for, for that. Um we are joined by an unbelievable panel. Um, so I have got a, a community officer with, with Tenny, Lilith Freya Carroll. I've got a lecturer and a constitutional law nerd herself, Jennifer, Dr. Jennifer Kavanagh. There is our friend of the pod, regular contributor, human rights activist, Good Friday advocate, uh, Good Friday agreement advocate, um, Emma D'Souza. And then we have with the um, Irish uh, the Irish Examiner senior correspondent, um, Mick Clifford. And Mick, it's to you I'm going to go first, if you don't mind. Um, yesterday, you had what I would call an important piece on inner city helping homeless, uh, the the issues that carried out, that went, have gone on there, and some of what you have pointed out as maybe a hierarchy of, of suffering, um, a hierarchy of, of, of grievance, because so the the alleged victims in this case are certainly more vulnerable as they were young men who were sleeping rough on the streets. Mick, do you want to just give the listeners um, a, an insight into the story and we, we can maybe ask a few questions then? Yeah, sure, Tony. And uh, first thing to acknowledge, it's obviously there are sensitivities attached to it because um person at the centre of it took his own life. There are also sensitivities attached to it because there are, as far as I'm aware, at least four potential victims and uh, certainly in terms of what the guard even investigated uh two of those are extremely credible victims and and i'm, I'm not sure the circumstances of the other two i'm not suggesting they are around one way or the other so and that's as far as we know now the, the the general gist of it as people may or may not know is uh anthony flynn founder of um inner city helping homeless and chief executive uh set up a huge organization he, he showed huge personal drive and expanding it was a major advocate for homeless people uh, then entered the political arena became a Dublin city councillor and in that in that office he was also a major advocate for the homeless and he continued to be so however the other side of the coin is that um, last May uh, an issue arose whereby um, a person by the Gardaí were contacted on behalf on behalf of an individual who made uh, allegations against Anthony Flynn about various, I'm not sure of the specifics, but it was in the area of sexual assault that he alleged happened in Anthony Flynn's home. Uh, the Gardaí raided the home. They uh, interviewed him. They took away some personal possessions. Then, 13 days later, there was a similar scenario. And again, 
he was arrested, interviewed, and as I understand it, his home was raided again. Um, at least one of those two individuals was a client of inner city helping homeless. Now, the first thing that arises there, of course, to my mind is anybody who's in a situation where they're homeless, one would classify them as vulnerable. That is far more so the case for those who are, I don't know the correct way of putting it, but what you might call the traditional homeless, as opposed to people who simply are lacking a roof over their head. You have a whole cohort of homeless people who have a whole array of issues, and that's the reason why they're homeless in the first place. So quite naturally, as a result of those type of personal issues, these people would be very vulnerable. Despite that, um, Inner City Helping Homeless Board was not contacted by the Gardaí to alert them that this situation had arisen, that the chief executive of the organisation, who quite obvious, who was Garda vetted, by the way, and who would have had access to an awful lot of people from a position of relative power, and I use that term lightly, but that, that's, the, that's the scenario, the, 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 the organisation was not contacted to inform them and therefore put them in a position whereby they could suspend Anthony Flynn if that was thought appropriate. And, and Mick, you, you, you raise a hypothetical in the, in the uh, story and saying that if this had happened in, in the university setting and it had been a university student and, and a lecturer involved, that, you know, there would have been, you would, you, you, again, this is a, a hypothetical that there might be more action and, and people had, would have acted sooner. There would have been an outrage and there has been, uh, as you term it, a lack of outrage and a lack of, um, you know, uh, mobilization about this issue, and and the, I suppose we hype, we 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 wonder how much of that is to do with the the idea that these these people were you know, these these people who made the the uh, who who who've claimed that they were sexually abused are they? Is it because they're homeless? Is it because they were young men? Is it gendered? Is it is it is it poverty? Is it is it that there's a, a hierarchy of humanity? And I suppose there are questions that we're all grappling with as well on this. And I, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't know how we, how we suggest. And I, I have to be full disclosure here. I, I've, I've raised thousands of euro over a number of years for inner city helping homeless, and 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 proud to have done so, and proud, to, proud to have supported that organisation. But that does not mean that we have that we, you know, we can't deal with these things in in a, in a way that we would deal with them as you as you put it, Mick. Had it happened in another realm. Yeah, and I mean, you know, that, that, that's the nature of these things. You know, if you want to use in a different sphere, we, there's a long tradition in this country, it certainly was until recent 10, 15 years, in terms of white collar crime was completely more or less ignored. Whereas the fella jump, or the girl or whomever jumping over the counter uh, because to feed an addiction or simply because they, they, they don't have enough food for tomorrow and they're turning to crime, they were dealt harshly with the courts. Now, this is just in a different realm. And basically, uh, I just raised the issue that, um, as you say, if this had been a different scenario, if it had been young women, if it had been a university, for instance, and then this emerged, that somebody who potentially could be described as a predator and whom the Gardaí had knowledge to that effect, that they were allowed to continue on in their position for three months until somewhat by an accident uh, it came to the attention of the board of inner city helping homeless. And I'm not pointing specifically a finger at the Gardaí here. Uh, it was the Gardaí who were there who, at the centre of it, but I just raised the question, is that a reflection of society in terms of hierarchical uh, of, of, of victimhood, for instance? Or, or let me put another way to you. 
Uh, if that scenario, that imaginative scenario I put forward about a university, if that had been the scenario and the, the Gardaí had been informed of that, would they have informed the college authorities? And I'd suspect they probably would, not on purpose that they didn't do so, but just basically it seems that it would certainly possibly be the case that we that the, the, the same respect and the same concern is not afforded. And another element to that, Tony, is, and I also mentioned this in the column, is the fact that there is not mandatory guard of vetting for everybody who interacts with homeless people. And I think that reflects also society that, for instance, I can set up, uh, I can set up there in the street and start um, handing out uh, uh, food parcels or sleeping bags and I need no guard of vetting. You can rock up to me. You can say, I give you a hand. Off you go. I don't know you from Adam. You don't know me. Nobody knows me from Adam. I'm not guard of vetting in that respect. All of that. It's just I, a really dangerous I, scenario. Sorry, Mick, I, I have an echo on my mic, but I just want to make a point, though, that just in the case of inner city helping homeless, because I'm conscious of the, the the people who are who are actually doing that. They they they. I know Anthony Flynn was guard vetted. There just was, was yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they they have their structures in place to do these things. Whether whether we believe that that's that that you're right, where you can say that the vulnerability of that, where where I could put on a high vis jacket and go out and do that, I'm. I'm conscious. Of, if any, does, if any of the other panelists want to want to comment, please do um, open your mic. It'd be great to hear from you because I think this is something that everybody um, is grappling with. But I just think it's it's something that that you know, mix mix article raises a really key point here on that hierarchy of victimhood and and why these things seem to some things seem to have more. Um, uh, credence or, or given more attention with the, with the public and I know in a you know so Jennifer in the university setting it might be different Lilith you, you you're working with Tenny you might you may see different things there oh gosh I I, I I'm I'm reticent to kind of com- comment on on this specifically just because I, I wouldn't know enough about it and I wouldn't want to be kind of saying anything you know that that's um you know that would that would be inaccurate or anything like that. I think the whole sorry story is is just kind of on the surface just seems just so so appalling. You know, I mean, in terms of kind of guard of editing, I like I I know that you know within my community there's a huge huge distrust of the guardy and and um you know the it it can be a little bit complicated and um, when it comes to the idea of guard of editing and you know it being sort of the be all and end all of kind of ensuring kind of safety uh, when dealing with, with vulnerable people. Um, but yeah, <laughs> so I can vetting only works if you've been caught. And that's the key issue that if someone hasn't been caught saying that their guard of it gives a veneer of everything being okay, when they might just be really good at what they're doing as in criminality. And like all university lecturers have to be guard of uh, I've gone through the guard of vetting procedure myself for lecturing. I know of many people who've been utterly frustrated by guard of vetting because they may be working three months with one community organisation. Then they have to go to another community organisation, but the guard of vetting doesn't go with them. Mm. So a lot of people are kept out of you know working in the care, um, care industry because of the way guard of vetting works so badly. And then some people who move around an awful lot say, you know, you're you're constantly going from sofa to sofa in different houses. When you are looking for guard vetting, you have to put down every single address. And if some people are constantly going through renting or insecure accommodation, there's problems with that. So guard vetting in one way is 
it's it's only just ensuring that you haven't been caught doing something in a way. And like there are wholesale problems of people who do want to work in social care anyway, with the way the system just doesn't work properly anyway. Yeah, that's definitely a thing as well, where you, you might be guard vetted in one organization, but that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you're guard vetted for another organization. And so you can easily say, oh, I've been guard vetted, but it may not necessarily be um, yeah. kind of linked to the organization. And even for child minding, every single person that you go and work with, they will all need that guard vetting. Um, now, they don't give out, you know, like say if you speed a speeding ticket, it will actually come up that you have a conviction, but then they check through it and it's like, oh, it's just speeding. But it does become unmanageable. And at the end of the day, you're only it only raises a flag if you've been caught. Yeah, I agree with you completely, Jennifer. I, I mentioned a piece that even in relation to helping out kids football, I helped out in soccer and GA to get different vetting for both of them. And it is a pain in the neck. I led an itinerant lifestyle in my 20s and I can't trying to remember back to every single place I lived in order to, you know, it, it, it is. But and you're right also, it is only valid in terms of facing somebody who um, who was caught doing something or whom there's allegation against that can use the soft information, as I understand it. But at least it's some form of a red flag. And the fact that you have to have different vetting for every organisation, even though it is naturally a pain in the neck for anybody who's, who's, who's moving around at all the um, the reason it's there is because there's an acknowledgement that the type of people who are predators are very cunning and they, they manage to um, move around like that but absolutely there's no question that it's, it's foolproof or anything whatsoever like that yeah, and I'm, I'm not saying I'm a psychologist or anything but um, I was talking to a friend who was a criminologist who did say that People who have that kind of tendency tend to move into those kind of caring roles where they exactly. where they can abuse that trust yeah. that they're, you're not going to find them, you know, in in non-contact roles. They're they're going to try and get themselves in so they can get the trust and then abuse that trust. Absolutely. There can also be, I, I guess, there could also be like a flip side to it where uh, if you are um, working in an organisation that uh, kind of works with. Um, uh, vulnerable people, the people that work in those organizations can sometimes come from that experience and they may have been um, had a history of harassment and intimidation from Gardaí in the past as well, uh, which can cause kind of issues there, you know, like for example, like trans people, um, there would be a proportion of trans people that are sex workers, for, for example, um, or, you know, would have had uh, had dealings with, with the, with the Gardaí for, for various uh, issues because trans people can often be uh, targeted and criminalized. Um, I just also see a great comment from Mick Finnegan, who himself has, has, has spoken very uh, openly and publicly about his own um, childhood sexual abuse um, issues and talking about safeguarding should be a priority for any organization work with vulnerable people. But our society isn't the best when it comes to best practices. Um, I, I think there's a lot there's a lot in that, Mick, about, you know, you've, you've seen both sides. You've seen the UK. You've seen how it goes. Um Mick Clifford, back to you for the just just you've been covering a lot of the, the, this story since the outset. Um, but in terms of and you, I know you said you don't want to you don't want to point at the Gardaí, but do we think we have to have a wider conversation about this as, as you know, within the NGO system and how and how we operate? I think we do, you know, because there's. You, you hear different things, for example, there's. During the homeless crisis, and particularly the aspect of the home, the aspect of the housing crisis being the homeless aspect of the housing crisis, particularly those in an emergency accommodation, 
and living on the streets was majorly to the fore prior to the pandemic. Now it seems to have shifted a bit. But one result of that was, very understandably, an awful lot of people decided they were going to get up themselves and actually do something and get out there and help people. And Anthony Flynn was absolutely motivated by that. But the other point is hundreds of other people have been as well. Now, whether or not in the overall context that is a positive thing is a question that should be debated. The 99.9% of people who do it are completely motivated for altruistic reasons and just basically to help people who are less fortunate. There's no question about that. But when you speak to some of the established agencies in homelessness and people in Dublin City Council, there's differing opinions on it. And you can well say maybe well their opinions are based on coming from their own perspective. But it, it is a conversation, I think, that needs to be had one way or the other. Now, one way you don't have it is the way Owen Keegan suggested that people are living on the streets when there was plenty of hostels there for them because the very obvious answer to that is those hostels are very dangerous or they're perceived as being dangerous by the people who won't go into them. So you don't have any conversation like that as far as I'm concerned. But there's a wider thing there as to how exactly is the best way to go about uh, assisting people who are, who are in those circumstances. And I think we need to do that. There's also the issue, I think, notwithstanding the, the, the imperfections of it, the Garda vetting scenario is definitely one that was provided at one stage, was discontinued in 2019. I don't know, but I suspect some of that might have been down to a resources issue because there were so many volunteers on the street that the Garda were hundreds of requests were into the Garda. I'm not sure about that. But one way or the other, it's something that definitely needs to be revisited as well yeah and i just think there's, there's one other comment around the around the charity model and i know me and you may have spoken about this off air about the fact that the state withdraws and the and the charity yeah. section rushes in and this is where we leave that exposure and we leave that the abdicate responsibility and and it, it opens up unfortunately to other these scenarios um i am conscious of time and i don't know Mick, you might want to hang on for this but i want to go yeah, to yeah. emma if that's okay um emma every time we speak we say another interesting week up north this has been a particularly interesting week up north. But I, I, if I could start with one thing first, um, the DUP threatening to uh, pull down Stormont if they don't get the protocol lifted. How serious is that and should we take it? And do we think they really want to march back to a, an election um, when they're already struggling in the polls? Well, it's difficult to really um, pin down how serious they are because it's kind of a double-edged sword for the DUP. Now that um, Jeffrey Donaldson has said that it's a matter of weeks and if the protocol you know, isn't scrapped and this cultural package around Irish language is in fact brought in while the protocol is still in place, then he's going to collapse Stormont. So if he doesn't actually do that, then that's another failure on the part of the DUP and um, those who he's trying to really um, rile up will be uh, not kind in the polls whenever they go to vote. The other side of it is if he does collapse Stormont, well, that will not be a, a forgiving thing either in the polls because people here are really prioritized around health, around the pandemic, around all the issues that affect our daily lives. And the last thing that people want to see is another collapse of Stormont over, you know, the fact that uh, Jeffrey Donaldson's party is polling so poorly at the moment and, and they see that as a threat to their own existence. Um, constitutionality of of the, of pulling of, of of we've had this conversation all week and Jennifer I, I know you you were terrific the other afternoon or evening on drive time talking about some of the some of the stuff that's gone on. Um, 
given putting your your uh, your your lecturer your own self declared um, constitutional nerd uh, hat on, Jennifer. If you don't mind, do you There's want to give, constitutional yeah, nerd? That's <laughs> it. Do you want to give me uh, some of your views on what's happened over the last <clears throat> number of days? That'd be please. Well, from from Wednesday, it was crazy. Like I haven't even had a chance to read that seat of judgment because we had the parliamentary privilege thing kicking off in the Dáil Chamber from what McCarthy said about Simon Harris and literally within six hours of that then you had John Bruton saying oh uh, the president should be going to the north oh it's his constitution remit all this kind of stuff the president can get invited anywhere it's like ourselves we do not have to accept the invite to the party there's nothing constitutional precluding either us as individuals or the president from going actually no I'm not going to go what would have gotten far more interesting is the fact that Travelling across the border would be leaving the state and the government could have said, no, you're not going, which would have made it even far more awkward. So it it really comes down to a personal choice. The president, does he want to go? Does he see it as something fitting that he should be at? And as well as that, bearing in mind that we did we did change articles two and three from basically annoying all the unionists and saying, yeah, that bit up there. Yeah, that's also ours to that bit up there, yeah, we'd like it back. We're going to aim that under consent and peaceful means we will try and reunite Ireland. That if the president went to something that is commemorating partition, which would still be not in line with the the general, you know, sentiments of Articles 2 and 3, that would have been a problem. So I think the safest thing was Michael D. Higgins saying, uh, thanks for the invite, lads, but I'm not going. That was the safest thing. I, I just want to. I, I, again, I spoke um, yesterday <coughs> evening to one of my friends in the in the in the unionist loyalist community, and he actually called it uh, the 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 faux outrage, um, and which was I was taken aback because he he called it out to me as in he knew that this was certainly you know trying to politicize something to make more of it, but worried that it would actually work on a certain demographic there. Um, Mick, as someone who has a reputation to go to uh, open a packet of crisps, uh, do you? What was your what was your feeling on it? I I, I, I don't have strong feelings. I, I'm a, I'm a bit conflicted by it, Tony. I have to say, um, the one thing that would put me uh, at one with Michael D Higgins is I think he's a fantastic president. I've a lot of respect for his intellectual ability, and I'm sure the way he would have teased this out himself went into a lot of nuances. In that respect, I'd love to hear a bit more from him about how he came to the decision. But I suppose to a large extent it comes down to whether this so-called commemoration is a celebration or just a, a question of marking the fact that partition is there. Although, as Michael D. points out himself, partition didn't officially occur until 1925 rather than 21. But anyway, if it's just marking that fact, because the one thing that has struck me about not lot of the comment since then is that everybody is saying the partition was an, an awful retrograde step for this step for this country. And I'd agree completely. A sectarian state was set up and to a large extent the South forgot about it. However, the one thing that strikes me is what exactly was the alternative? Because I cannot, for the life of me, see what the alternative could have been. There certainly could have been an alternative in terms of how it developed, how it developed into a sectarian state up there how it was left, how the nationalists were left to fend from themselves from down here. But the mere fact of the fact that the country was partitioned, I can't see what else could have happened. So from that point of view, if you're marking its existence is one thing, celebrating it is is, is a very different matter altogether. Emma, I see. I see. 
I see you're not you're not in your head, and you're also disagreeing with certain points here from everybody. So give us your <laughs> your take on 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 the actual. First of all, can I make one point? There was a big thing where the, the, we talked about the actual invitation, and if you read the invitation, it's kind of carefully enough worded. I would I would argue um, it's you know it's it's vague enough to be broad enough to be interpreted in different uh, to not maybe be a celebration. But that's again, I that's how that was my reading. Uh, well, I think there's a couple of things to unpack here. So in the first instance is a, a question around processes. So anyone who is inviting a head of state or, or anyone uh, in high office to an event, there's a number of steps that you go through. So first, there's the signing out as to whether or not they might be interested in coming to the event. There's establishing what the event is going to be about, the official invitation. Once this all becomes out in the open, it really is supposed to be all teed off. So you don't have this kind of controversy that we've seen over the last few days. That didn't happen in this instance. I think there's definitely a question around processes. I mean, I personally um, dealt with Sabina Higgins' office recently to get her to speak at an event. And it involves a lot of background conversations before anyone even knows what's happening. So the fact that President Higgins has stated that he had an issue with the wording back in March, that he spent six months deliberating over whether or not to attend, you know, we we are not privy to many of the conversations that would have happened uh, behind the scenes in, in, in this event. So I think it comes down to trusting that the president does historically have great political acumen. Uh, he is a man that's known for integrity and taking a lot of thought and looking at reconciliation and our shared history and all of these complex issues. So, and it's also consistent, important to say that it's consistent with what he did in 2016, whenever he pulled out of a dinner in Belfast, marking the Easter Rising in 1916, because there wasn't cross-party support. So there's consistency in his decision here as well. The other side of it, of course, is the fact that unionism and some within unionism just seized upon it as a sectarian stick to beat uh, the state with. You know, so it's a bit hypocritical, you know, when you see the DUP coming out and saying that this damages North-South relations, that it's hard to build a shared future because of President Higgins' position, when that same party is threatening to collapse the institutions in the North and is pulling out of North-South institutions. And then to close it off, I think there is a wider thing around sort of the fact that we haven't really, as a people, reconciled with the past. I, I think that's... In a nutshell, we haven't reconciled with it, um, and but we keep hearing again. I want to go back to my conversation last night with 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 member of the loyalist Yunus community said that there is still um, seething resentment there, and but there's also conversations happening that weren't happening 18 months ago, pre Brexit. You know these conversations around what what it would look like, and there. So there, how it's been positioned in that community is that well where will be my place if there is a shared ireland that is the that is how they're and 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 it's been you know it's been put to me as gently as that but when you hear where is my place that that would worry me um jennifer i'd be interested just to just for a last thing we can cover on that though in terms of the um issue you you, you refer to and I, I, I again you go back to matt carty using doll privilege and and what fell out of it my understanding of it was that the the leak necessarily wasn't a leak at all. If 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 something was discussed at cabinet, you can then step outside and afterwards and 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 let, let people know. Or am I or am I to- totally incorrect in that? Well, the first thing about the Catherine's opponent leak is that, as far as I understand, her name was on the list with all the new ambassadors that were being appointed. That would have been a press release from Ivy House within two or three days. But there's two different constitutional doctrines at play here. The first one is cabinet confidentiality, where you don't go off and tell people what was discussed at cabinet. 
Now, bear in mind, you've cabinet generally Tuesday morning, you have a press conference Tuesday afternoon, the political correspondents are told these were the general points of agreement, but it's not down to the micro level debate. But then there's also the doctrine of collective responsibility. And I'll give you a very good example of that. When they brought in the smoking ban, uh, Martin Cullen, I, be, I believe was Martin Cullen as far as I remember, but he came out and he went, Asher, we, we brought it through, but sure, I, I wouldn't agree with it. That was actually breaking a constitutional doctrine. Now, there's there's plenty of other examples of that. And apologies to Martin Cullen if, I got, if I'm attributing it to him in the wrong, but I'm nearly sure it was him. But the whole idea is that the cabinet is such an important part of government that you can't have people running out and saying, oh, yeah, the majority agreed with it, but myself and your man, we thought it was a load of nonsense because it undermines the strength of cabinet. That, look, if they're, if you don't agree, you've gotten your chance to put your point forward and you lost the vote, therefore keep your mouth shut because you don't want people being able to pick apart the cabinet separately. And there's the, the famous thing from Yes Prime Minister, like I'm a totally Yes Prime Minister nerd. I have used some of the clips in class teaching constitutional law. I'm that bad. But there's the famous clip of um, the one who reads the newspapers and like the people who read the Financial Times own the country, etc. And it all comes from this idea that there's a scandal in the city and the Prime Minister is saying, I need to have an inquiry. Uh, Sir Humphrey is saying, and when did you come up with this idea? Oh, this morning when I read the papers. Mm. And you like we do short term responses pretty well in, in Ireland. We do really, really long term things like making sure that social welfare people get paid. But those medium term bits, they just fall between two stools. It's ridiculous. And when it comes to the cabinet, you don't want them reacting so quickly to some sort of medium term measure that they absolutely mess it up even more than they would usually mess it up because they're thinking what's going to be the editorial on this tomorrow in whatever newspaper. I totally agree that they need that space where they can take those decisions, but I don't know what we're doing so radically different in Ireland that we need the 30-year official um, Cabinet Confidentiality National Archives rule, whereas in Scandinavia, in some of the countries there, they'll have it out in four days. I don't know what's so radically different between the two, but it is really showing this whole bigger idea of Either we want proper open government transparency, workable, FOI, etc., or we literally want the old style British, you know, pre, pre-independence style of keeping everything quiet. Mick, can I ask you just before we move on again to to as as someone who who lives on um, tidbits and 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 tips and and uh, what, what what was generally called muckraking for for generations, Mick? How do you how do you feel about the, the this this idea of uh, and and you know because we've seen your colleague da- Daniel McConnell regularly live tweeting what was going on in the Fianna Fáil parliamentary party yeah. meetings. I you think know. he gets the Zoom link at this stage now, to be honest <laughs> yeah, with you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and fair play to him because I do exactly the same if I had his contacts. And look, I'm a journalist. Uh, we live off leaks. Jennifer's, the way Jennifer laid out the, the importance of cabinet confidentiality is absolutely spot on and valid. However, uh, as a journalist, I don't think it's that big a deal if leaks come out of the cabinet. Now, in this instance, the, the substance of the leak, that I don't think that was a particularly big deal. The, the story turned out to be a big deal, but the actual substance of the leak at the time and the importance of it, um, as opposed to an awful lot of other issues that could have been vitally important, I don't think 
it was that important an issue. I'm not defending it or anything. I'm just saying I don't think it was that important issue. The one thing during the week, though, that did strike me was uh, Matt Carthy bringing up Simon Harris's name in the doll and subsequently admitting there was no evidence. Now, if you look at doll privilege, and I'd be interested what Jennifer thinks about this in particular, doll privilege, go back to the likes of Joe Higgins bringing up about Turkish workers being paid two or three euro an hour because the, there was no other way of getting it out. That is what doll privilege is there for. Mark Daly in the Senate, and I was a bit iffy about this at the time, I subsequently told him personally that I, I was wrong. Him bringing up about a situation around Christian brother abusing uh, kids in a school, it turned out to be absolutely spot on, and it was a last-ditch effort to get public attention for it. That type of thing is why doll privilege is there for. And if we're not careful about how it's used, we're getting into very sticky territory, and it was quite obviously during the week just being used to score political points. So I'd be personally, and as I say, I have an interest in the journalist. I enjoy leaks. I'd, I'd have more, um, I'd have more concern about that thing. Um, can I, be, Jennifer? I would like to get your insight on that. But before I do, make I don't know if you remember, but um, the uh, now tarnished then Taoiseach once uh, um, used all privilege to to have a good cut at my um, the reboot Republic host Rory Hearn. I wrote um, about it at the time, Tony. Yeah. I wrote about it at the time. They said he was totally out of order. Yeah, and and um, you know, so you know, it goes both ways. But Jennifer, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you might give us uh, your last stop before we move on to uh, on on that. I know, as I said, busy week for constitutional law. Um, look, absolute privilege is there for the reason that the members of Parliament. It's been there since the Bill of Rights. What sixteen eighty nine. It's it, it's one of the, the foundations of the reason that we have members of parliament, apart from passing legislation, they can they can voice issues. Though we are one of the few countries where if you feel like you've been defamed, you have an opportunity to complain about that within the Dáil itself or with, within the structures of the standing orders. Uh, Australia does it. England was looking at it, but said, no, we won't, because look, if you're that annoyed, you'll just go on to Newsnight and have a big row. But it allows for people within six weeks to actually contact the Count Corla and that can go to the Committee on uh, Procedures and Oversights. That name has changed a couple of times. But it does mean that you can actually go in and say, look, what was said about me was completely wrong. Now, it does only apply to individuals. So if, say, a group of people have been told that they were only watching, say, box sets over the pandemic and are very annoyed about it, they can't do anything as a group. But we're, it's not something we're going to lose unless we have a referendum because it is actually written into the Constitution and it's in as part of the Defamation Act. With all privileges, there will be people abusing them. But how do you actually proportionately deal with that abuse? That is, that's the bigger issue. Because if you decide that some breach of privilege is so egregious that they should be kicked out of the doll for two months, that means for those two months, those people are not actually going to be represented. So... It is something the courts are getting more actively involved in, and that was the result of the Kearns case. Now, that was before a committee of the Oireachtas, so it didn't have the same rules. But if there is a clear disregard um, being shown to an individual's rights, the courts are far more willing now to step in from the judgment of the Kearns case. So, Mick, you're completely right. They do have to watch themselves because if they do go completely over the top on this, it might call in the emergency rescue valve of the courts to say, come here now, this is ridiculous um, in very more judicial language than that. But it is it is a privilege and it has to be used appropriately. And 
I think under the new version now, they can make sanctions, but they have to be very careful with how much those sanctions impact on the rest of the job of the TD. Um, I, thanks, thanks for that. Um, I do want to bring Lilith in to discuss something else significant that happened yesterday, Lilith. And um, I think you pointed out that it was a, it was a win. Um, Bell versus Tavistock was overturned in the Court of Appeal, uh, which I'm sure comes as a relief for um, the tr- young trans people, their families, the, the wider trans community, and, and indeed uh, allies. Um, what was your understanding, and, and how was how how good was it to see a win? Because it's not, it hasn't been. We don't get many, unfortunately. Uh, no, no, I, uh, it, it's weird. It, it's it's a sort of a win. I mean, it just kind of basically kind of puts things back to where they were, um, you know, before the judgment took place. Um, I mean, there's so much to it. I don't know how I can kind of squish it all in, but um, um, I guess the, the Bell Tavistock ruling uh, happened um, uh, um, kind of at the beginning of the year, which uh, said that it was unlikely for a child under 16 to, that could be uh, Gillick competent regarding the use of uh, puberty blockers. And um, that uh, the other day was uh, completely thrown out uh, on appeal and, uh, you know, citing things about uh, even like uh, things being unlawful and stuff like that about the initial kind of uh, judgment. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a case that was uh, brought by some, by a kind of a, uh, a lawyer that um, has a history of trying to attack Gillick competence and, uh, because of um, abortion um, and contraception, um, and um, but the the case itself um, has had repercussions all around the world. Even though it's in the UK, um, it, it was, it's been cited in a lot of transphobic legislation that was used in the state. That that's been happening in the states. Uh, it resulted in uh, under 16s in Sweden uh, not being able to access uh, healthcare. Um, you know, uh, citing this case, um, and um, you know, in Ireland, I mean, it there's been the the Irish Times has written a series of articles over the past months. You know, uh, March fifth, March tenth, May third, June twenty sixth, which was uh, Pride Day, um, you know, uh, referencing uh, this case and and talking about uh, trans rights, and they even sent freedom of information requests um, and and uh, has and kind of published um, you know. Uh, these requests where clinicians uh, at the adult uh, National Gender Service were lobbying um, the uh, Crumlin Hospital uh, and citing Daily Mail articles, not not uh, even um, you know scientific and best practices. Sorry, I, I, and they didn't actually. And since the the there's been very little mention in the Irish Times since the case was overturned. By the way, and you mentioned the United States is 144 pieces of legislation actively working their way through different states that are deemed to be either transphobic or in 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 some sort of way to 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 impinge on the rights of the LGBT plus community. 144 when you're facing a Supreme Court that only recently said, "Look, we'll we'll see how to get on in Texas with this new thing." Um, it, you know, it, yeah, it, and huge indeed, real life implications. Huge. I mean, in the in the UK, like thousands of under 16s were affected overnight when the uh, uh, NHS uh, stopped uh, treating under 16s, and that hasn't been, uh, you know, as quickly uh, uh, reinstated either. They're they're citing a, a cast review uh, over there, and the Irish Times haven't reported on it. Well, they they kind of re- recirculated like a kind of general article on it. Um, 
And it's had uh, impacts in in Ireland. I mean, um, up until the end of uh, last year, um, uh, Crumlin Hospital had a contract with the the Tavistock, uh, which ended. And as a result, um, healthcare for uh, trans adolescents has collapsed. There was meant to be a um, a system uh, or a, a clinic kind of put in place, but it wasn't happened because the original report that came out and uh, that was meant to come uh, that finished in February of last year was delayed and delayed and delayed, and then released after the Taoiseach and the doll said release this report on Christmas Eve, uh, and as a result, there has been no healthcare for under 16s in this country, and we have clinicians <laughs> from the adult service lobbying. Uh, and citing Daily Mail articles claiming that um, you know uh, um, that the um, that Tavistock were giving HRT with an adequate assessment, um, and that um, you know that uh, and that will be only a matter of time until cases will be taken against the HSE uh, by children attending uh, Crumlin. And um, you know, Tenny have asked for the National Gender Service to to clarify their statements on this, and they haven't. Um, and in the, in the intervening time, um, you know, we recently received the Freedom of Information request with regards to the National Gender Service. We now have 790 uh, adult patients uh, waiting uh, for a clinic that, um, you know, the clinician from the National Gender Service states that they um, process about 150 a year. And um, so, you know, do the math, the, the uh, waiting list for the adult service could be uh, reaching a decade at this stage. Uh, we're in a national emergency when it comes to uh, healthcare uh, for trans people, and it's not being discussed. Instead, we're being we're we're having com- uh, conversations where uh, trans people are being politicised, uh, and uh, you know our our, uh, our health system is is on the verge of collapse. Yeah, and and we've seen people having to fundraise and travel and go just for for care, access to care, access to things that requirements. Um, and I'm conscious, Emma. The last time we were on, you, you mentioned uh, yeah, living in in our very own Gilead. Um, like what does what does like when you see something like that at judgment, and yet you know where you have one part of the community in 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 the north of the island saying we want to be treated exactly the same as everybody else, but on the other hand, we don't want the exact we don't want to give the same rights to so many. And then you hear Lilith speak about it. It must be it must be um, eye opening and and frustrating. I mean, it's just another day in uh, the cut and thrust of Northern Irish politics where um, what about and division prevails um, and hypocrisy is really something that we are disappointingly all quite accustomed to when it comes to the claims of wanting equal rights and yet denying them if it's one that a particular party doesn't agree with. So it is very difficult and often as well, um, you know, it's left out of the conversation that Northern Ireland is in many ways a backwater compared to the rest of the UK when it comes to legislation um, and that continues to persist. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a difficult, um, difficult time. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Lilith, did you want to come in? Oh, it's just like, you know, there's just so much to this. I mean, the, um, you know, you know, Tenny advocates, uh, you know, uh, WPATH International Best Practice Standards of Healthcare, w, uh, you know, and which is in the current program for government, but has been resisted by clinicians in the, uh, in the National Gender Service in favour of their own 
psychopathologizing model, even though the, that uh, the, um, the um, World Health Organization has depathologized trans people and that is meant to be implemented in January. Uh, and instead, we have a system where uh, trans people are having to wait, you know, you know, longer than my transition now uh, to, in order to get access to basic healthcare. And then when they go into the system, you know, they're asked the most, you know, um, intrusive, disgusting questions and everybody has to do it. Um, you know, uh, and like questions that are around um, your, your sex life, your genitals, the genitals of the partner you've had, your masturbation, your porn habits. You know, it, it's just, if this was to happen to another group of people, there would be absolute uproar. Mm. But, you know, what we're having to contend with is, is uh, you know, um, a case that should never have been heard in the first place, uh, uh, making, you know, having impact around the world. Um, and uh, in the meantime, the trans community are being forced to go private, to fundraise, to do sex work, uh, to in order to get um, to to get healthcare. Uh, and uh, you know, it, it's just you know, I lie awake at night worrying about what is going to happen to my community. Uh, and uh, and all above me, there is this conversation that has been had that is just like so divorced from reality, and it's um, it's so incredibly offensive. Is it not great that we just talk at you, Lilith, and rather than to you? You know, that's that's the way we do. It. We like to do it like that. You know, it's 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 yeah. it, 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 I do, but I see it all the time, and that was why. I, and I, this is not to make me sound anyway great, but just working with you and the Starlings has been one of the best things I've done in the last um, couple of years, and I absolutely think it's eye opening that the. The uh, to me, it, it's brought it's 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 educated me, and it's 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 been some of the best experiences in terms of the podcast and the tortoise shackles with you guys. So so thank you for 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 sharing that today, and you know I think everybody needs to hear and listen. Um, and I also like I think it's really really important to listen to the trans community on things like this. Like uh, right now, you know, after the judgment was made yesterday, um, an announcement was made by the Christian Institute that they were now going to appeal Gillick confidence. This was always a wage issue in order to act uh, uh, to attack, you know, abortion and contraception rights. We've been saying this from the beginning, and you know, nobody was listening to us. And now we have a situation where, uh, you know, uh, Gaelic confidence itself is under attack um, by you know far right Christian groups, uh, and you know, the global implications are, are well, real. Well-funded well, well groups as well. And we see this in the United States where, 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 where what's going on in Texas is, is still piling on. And they've, I heard a discussion this morning, I was listening back to something and they, they talked about the abortion rule and they mentioned property rights. So that's, was, that was chilling. Look, I do need to move on. I'm conscious of time. I want to mention a very couple, couple of things that were quite funny this week. Um, we heard Eamon Ryan promise no, promise no blackouts in the, in the winter um, because he said, you know, the, the, the grid should be able to cope. Um, but we then see today in the, in the business post that uh, we might lose out on a few data centers because uh, we, we, can't con we can't carry water and electricity. And Mick, you might be interested in this. Obviously, I know you yourself and Martin have, have written about bogus self-employment for a long time. The blunt instrument of just putting up the pension age again seems to be um, to me linked very much to a gap in employers' PRSI and a gap in, in, in taxes being paid and what what isn't being done it does seem to me that they're just trying to force through let's let's use the the tool of increasing the age rather than looking at it in in the more complex more nuanced way yeah definitely i mean i, I 
from what I've seen of the the the, the figures that there's going to be have to be an increase in in uh, PRSI, <laughs> and unfortunately, at some stage, I think we're going to have to raise the pension age one way or the other. Um, it's easy for you to say that you're what sixty. Yeah, I'm heading in that direction. No, but there's a there's a there's a stark reality, and that is there are going to be fewer people working to support more pensioners. That's one element of it. The second element of it is, thankfully, we're all living a bit longer. When 65 came in as the pension age, the life expectancy was about 73, 74. Now I think it's 83, 84 thereabouts. It's a real difficult issue how exactly to approach it. Simply raising the pension age will definitely not do it. But coming up with something that leaves the pension age at 65 strike me as that's another one of kicking the can down the road and let the next generation uh, stump up. Yeah, I, Sharon made a good point in the, in the comments saying when politicians review their pension entitlements, I'll, I'll discuss mine. That's very, <laughs> that's very fair, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm conscious of time, guys. Uh, we will wrap it up. I, this has been fantastic and apologies again. I know um, I, I, I will be nicer to Martin. I hope I do hope he's getting the care that he needs in in, 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 in the hospital. But, uh, you know, uh, it was very last minute of him to leave me on my own again. But nonetheless, uh, Emma D'Souza, Jennifer Kavanagh, Lilith Carroll and, and Mick Clifford, thank you for joining us on the Tortoise Shack Sunday special today. Um, guys, it's been great. We were uh, yeah, we're always delighted to have these conversations it's if you want to come along it's patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack talk to you all very very soon 